All right, thank you, Brother Roger. I thought he was going to fly away there for a minute. <laughs> thank you. Take your Bible this morning. Turn to the little book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 12. It's been a great series on Sunday mornings through the books of First and 2 Thessalonians. I've learned a lot in studying these books afresh, and, and I hope that you've learned some new things too. Is the day of the Lord at hand? That's the title of the message today. Is the day of the Lord at hand? Is the end of all things at hand? I've been hearing that all my adult life. It seems like every generation thinks that they're the worst that's ever happened and things can't get any worse. Just when we think things can't get any worse, they get worse, don't they? So we wonder how much worse will things get. We think our nation couldn't be any more divided than it is now. Then a Supreme Court vacancy came along makes us even more divided. This is going to be something to watch, isn't it? The lines are being drawn, it seems like, more and more in our nation. But it's going to get worse before it gets any better. It's going to get worse. I hate to tell you that, but it will get worse before it gets better for us as a country and also for us as believers. No wonder people are asking, is this the end? Is this truly the time of the end? Well, the Thessalonian Christians in the first century we're already asking that question. They were asking, has the day of the Lord come? Did we somehow miss the day of the Lord? Now, Paul, of course, established his church at Thessalonica, and he had taught them some things about the second coming of Christ. But after he wrote the book of 1 Thessalonians to them, something happened that upset these people. Some teaching came along, uh, maybe a letter or something, a message claiming to be from Paul, but it really wasn't. And it somehow unhinged these people. Now, you know, you've got to realize that uh, these people didn't have the New Testament like we have it today. New Testament was being written. This was part of the New Testament, so they didn't have it to look at. So they were young believers, but something had gotten them shaken about the day of the Lord. Somehow they thought it had already happened, it had already passed. Back in the 1800s, Charles, Charles Taz Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, made a prediction that Jesus Christ was going to return in 1914. Well, obviously he didn't come back in 1914. Well, afterwards, Jehovah's Witnesses explained it by saying, well, he came, but it was a secret coming. It was actually a change of thrones. He sat down at the throne of the kingdom at that time. And many times throughout church history, there have been times and examples of people being confused about the nature of the second coming, some denying that there would not even be a literal second coming of Christ. Well, we as Orthodox Christians have always taught and believed that there is going to be a literal second coming of Christ. But something had shaken these people. Something had shaken them. So Paul writes to them and he says, in the verses that we'll read in just a moment, don't be shaken in their faith. Don't be rattled. Keep your spiritual equilibrium about you. That's good advice for us today. Don't be shaken. Don't be rattled. Don't be misled by sensationalism when it comes to issues about the second coming. You know, people are prone to be misled they're prone to buy into sensational things aren't they when i was growing up i was in high school in fact i remember there was a church in shreveport that always had something sensational going on about the second coming of christ one time they had a guest speaker coming in they had an ad in the newspaper about this guest speaker coming in this guy had discovered who the antichrist was he even had video he was going to show of this antichrist at his castle in europe this was early 1970s. Obviously, that guy at the castle in Europe was not the Antichrist. 
But people buy into things like that. So don't be misled by things like that. The solution is stay grounded in Scripture. Look what Scripture says about it. That's our source anyway. What does Scripture say about the issue? And be careful about anything that goes beyond what the Scripture teaches us. Ground everything there. So take a look at chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians. First 12 verses, and stand with me as we stand and honor the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> this is what Paul writes to these people who are somewhat rattled in their faith. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you be not quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so now until he is taken out of the way. Then that lost one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by his appearance at his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power of signs and false wonders and all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved for this reason god will send upon them a deluding influence so they will believe what is false in order that they may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness let's join together in prayer ask god's blessings on this message today father we thank you so much for your word for the fact that it never changes Father, it's easy to be shaken as we look at events around us. But Father, help us to be firm in our faith. Father, encourage us from this passage today. Let us see what it says to us today, living 2,000 years later. There's a real message here for us. As we contemplate the day of the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This is one of the most difficult passages that Paul wrote. And if you come to it, let it just speak and say what it says. Don't come to it with a preconceived idea of what it says or try to impose something on it that it doesn't say. Just let it say what it says and go from there. You have to approach passages like this in that way. Now these two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, are among the earliest of the New Testament. Written about the year AD 52, uh, 50, 50 to 52, somewhere along in there. So these are the earliest scriptures that we have in the New Testament about the second coming of Christ. So we ought to pay attention to them. Now Paul says there in verse 5, Don't you remember that I was telling you these things when I was with you? Don't you wish Paul had told us everything in the Scripture that he told to them back then? But he didn't tell us quite everything he told them. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall to really hear everything he had told them. But we have what we have, and so we go from there. We go from there. Now, you look at the very first verse, it concerns two things, the coming of our Lord and then our being gathered to Him. So what does Paul say about the day of the Lord? These people rattled, they were thinking maybe the day of the Lord has already happened and we missed it. No, Paul says it hadn't happened yet. Two things have to happen first before the day of the Lord. 
It's evidence that it hasn't happened yet because these two things have not happened. He says, first of all, the apostasy. The apostasy. A falling away. A forsaking of a former allegiance. A rebellion. The word was used both of a, a political falling away and also spiritual falling away. But the emphasis really here is on the latter. But we're seeing both, aren't we? We're seeing our politics come unraveled in this nation, aren't we? Can anybody deny that? Both religiously and politically, we're coming apart. You know, to have a decent society, you have to have law and order, don't you? That's a basic, fundamental thing. That's one thing you're seeing come unraveled here in the United States. Look at places like Portland, Oregon, Minneapolis, New York City, things that have happened in recent days that we didn't think were possible a few years ago. In terms of law and order breaking down. And people thinking, we don't need law and order anymore. Well, you have to have that to have a functioning society. So we're, politically, we're coming unraveled. And also spiritually, we are falling away. New Testament speaks many times of a falling away that is going to happen in the last times. You look at things that are happening now in our nation, in churches, things that are accepted now that were not accepted just 15 years ago. Yet overnight, we seem to be drifting away. Drifting away as the people of God, falling away. It doesn't mean that every church is going to become apostate, but just overall, there's a drift away. Very obvious, isn't it? So, the apostasy. The apostasy. And he says the second thing that happens is the revealing of the man of lawlessness. The revealing of the man of lawlessness. Now, the term antichrist is only used in the epistles of John. In the little book of 1 John and also Third John. That's the only place where that actual term is used. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, he writes to those people and says, Lord children, it is the last hour. And he's writing that at the end of the first century. And he says, it is the last hour. If you've heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From that, you know that it is the last hour. What John seems to be saying is that, that Antichrist is, first of all, a spirit or an attitude that you see manifested in many ways in many people down through the ages, but it will come to final culmination in one Antichrist. So there's an Antichrist spirit going on even now, John says. It will come to culmination in a final Antichrist at the end of history. Now Paul talks about the man of lawlessness, or the man of sin, some translations say. No doubt he's talking about the same person. He calls him the man of lawlessness, the, the son of destruction. And the term son of destruction means that he is headed for destruction. That's his destiny, is destruction. Daniel chapter 7 refers to a little horn. Revelation chapter 13 talks about a beast. It is talking about the same individual, the same individual. Down through the ages of church history, there have been a lot of people who have been accused of being the Antichrist. A lot of good candidates for Antichrist. Early centuries of the church. They looked at some of the Roman emperors and thought that they were the Antichrist. Mohammed was called the Antichrist. You come to the time of the Protestant Reformation during the 1500s, and, and Martin Luther called the Roman Catholic Church. He called the Pope the Antichrist. And as payback, the, Roman, the Catholic Church started calling Luther the Antichrist. They called each other the Antichrist. <laughs> You've seen a lot of that in history. And during the American Civil War, both sides were calling each other the Antichrist. Napoleon Bonaparte was called the Antichrist. You come to the First World War, Kaiser Wilhelm of Europe was called the Antichrist. You come to the Second World War, you had a bunch of candidates for Antichrist, didn't you? 
Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, a lot of good candidates for Antichrist. Come to the Cold War. Khrushchev. When I was a small boy, I remember you know, Khrushchev was the bad guy. Remember? remember Khrushchev, you older people? Mikhail Gorbachev was called the Antichrist. Mikhail Gorbachev had a, that birthmark on top of his head, remember? Mark of the beast, right? <laughs> That's what some people said. That's what some people said. And you go on, other people were called the Antichrist. Pope John Paul II, Anwar Sadat, <laughs> president of Egypt. Yasser Arafat, remember Yasser? <laughs> Jimmy Carter was called the Antichrist by some people. Go figure that. <laughs> Ronald Reagan. When Reagan was president, I got a letter in the mail one time, and it was a, it was a form letter that had been sent out to a lot of people, I could tell that. But it said Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. And it even specified a certain date at which Reagan was going to proclaim himself king of the world. Therefore, he'd be revealed at that time as the Antichrist. His full name, Ronald Wilson Reagan, each of those names had six letters in it. Six, six, six. So he had to be the Antichrist. Hey, this letter wasn't a joke. The person that wrote it was serious. That's what's scary. <laughs> they were actually serious, and some people probably actually believe it. You can go on and on with those types of things, and people get into crazy speculation sometimes that is not productive. Okay, that's not productive when people do things like that. Now, thinking back over the, some of the people that I've named, Adolf Hitler, for example, he's always the example people always use, you know. Well, he was an antichrist-type person, wasn't he? You can look at a lot of those people I named who, they, they were, they were antichrist-type people. They were not the final antichrist, but they definitely had that, that spirit, that attitude. Now, that's what 1 John's getting at in chapter 2, verse 18 there. That, that, that there are many antichrists to arrive, but it culminates in the final. They're all forerunners. They're pictures of a final antichrist who is going to arise. So, Satan's primary tool, I told you this last week, that Satan's primary tool is imitation. Imitation. So it shouldn't surprise us that there arises an antichrist, a counterfeit Christ, an imitation Christ. So those two events. Now, think secondly about Three stages, and, and you, could, you could say the career of the Antichrist. One writer refers to, to the career of the Antichrist and talks about different stages. First of all, there is restraint. There's a time when he is restrained. Look again at verses uh, 6 and 7. You know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. This mystery of lawlessness is already at work and it's growing. Don't you see it every day right here in our nation? You're seeing more and more the growth of just unabashed evil. The only word for it, the mystery of lawlessness, it's growing even now. The man who is the ultimate expression of that, the Antichrist, is being restrained by something at first. At first he is restrained by something. And in verse 6, he says, you know what restrains him now. He talks about it in the neuter. But then in verse 7, he who restrains, he uses the masculine there. So he uses both, both neuter and masculine to refer to it. So one of the big mysteries of this passage is who or what exactly is the restrainer? A lot of people think it's the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit 
is restraining the Antichrist now. And he'll be withdrawn. Some people say God Himself, or the Archangel Michael, or the preaching of the Gospel. There are some who say that, that really Paul's referring here to the principle of law and order. That's why he refers to it in both the neuter and the masculine. The, law, the principle of law and order embodied in the one who enforces that. That there is that principle of law and order. God has given us government to maintain an orderly society, hadn't He? And God's timing, that is going to be removed. And this man of lawlessness is going to be revealed, and He will do away with government limitations. He will become the government Himself. He becomes the government Himself. He will act as He wills. Now, the bottom line as far as you exactly who, what the, the restrainer is. The, the Thessalonians knew what Paul was talking about, but we don't. But we don't. Well, just know that right now, something is restraining. Something or someone is restraining. There's a lid right now. One day that lid is going to be removed. Like you got something boiling, about to boil over. you got a lid on it. And right now, the lid's holding it down. It's about to boil over. Someday, the lid is going to be taken off, and it will boil over. So you think evil is rampant now? This mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It is bubbling. It is boiling. One day, the lid is going to come off. The restraints are going to be removed in God's timing. In God's timing. Now, keep that in mind. The lost one will be revealed. God right now, in His own purposes, is restraining it. God is the one who ultimately sets the limits, doesn't He? No evil person, no man of lawlessness, not Satan himself, can overstep the boundaries God has put out there. Always keep this in mind when you're reading passages like this or thinking about events like this. Keep in mind that God ultimately is in control. The sign we have out in front of the church right now that I had Nick put up there a while back do not doubt it. God is in control. So don't panic. Don't be fearful. God's always in control, isn't He? We talked about this in Sunday school class this morning, how God is Lord over all the nations. In the book of Isaiah, it talks about God being the judge of all the nations, not just the nation of Israel. All these other pagan nations had their little God, their little, little pagan God, their little tribal God who they thought was limited to their land. They were all subject to God whether they acknowledged Him or not. And the same thing is true today. God is ultimately in authority. So right now there, there is restraint. There is restraint, but then the day is going to come when the restrainer is going to be removed and the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. So the second stage in his career is rebellion when he is fully revealed. And so you look at uh, verse 4. He who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And then down in verse 8, The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord is going to slay with the breath of his mouth. Then verse 9 says, The one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, he'll send a deluding influence. A deluding influence. So, he will take his seat, it says, in the temple of God. However that plays out, whether it's a rebuilt temple, it may be that. But there will be some clear demonstration that he is making himself God. Not just, I'm the guy in charge, but I'm actually God. It was common in the ancient world. 
for uh, rulers to proclaim themselves divine. It'll be obvious that what he is doing, he's making himself God. Now, interesting to look back through Jewish history, there are many instances of men defiling the temple, defiling the temple. You go back to 168 B.C., and Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian ruler who was ruling over the Jews at that time, he tried to change their worship. He tried to make Greeks out of them. And so in the temple, he had a statue of Zeus placed in the Holy of Holies there in the temple. Also had a pig slaughtered in the Holy of Holies. Imagine how that made the Jewish people feel. That was a defiling of the temple. In 63 B.C., the Roman general Pompey came in and he entered the Holy of Holies. He didn't try to change anything, but nobody was allowed in the Holy of Holies, right? But he went into the Holy of Holies. In A.D. 40, Roman Emperor Caligula. Now, Caligula was crazy. He, he was just really crazy. And he ordered a statue of himself to be placed in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. There was such an outcry from the Jewish people, though, that uh, he was convinced to back off of that. But uh, that was in A.D. 40. This book was written in about uh, 52. So that was just 12 years before Second Thessalonians was written. So that event would have been fresh in the minds of people. They remembered that. And so Paul probably envisioned something like that. Some open demonstration of someone saying, I am God. I am God. Where people know this guy is making himself God. So, three things that characterize him. First is this. He will oppose God and exalt himself. He will oppose God and exalt himself. He himself will become God. Second thing is this. He will be aligned with Satan. He will be aligned with Satan. In verse 9, it talks about his, his coming. Same words used there that was used to describe Jesus' coming. So his coming, the coming of this man of lawlessness, will be like, like a parody of the coming of Christ. Because he is a false Christ. He's an imitation Christ. So it will be like, like a parody of the coming of Christ. And he will be aligned with Satan. He will work false miracles. Just like Jesus worked true miracles, he'll work false ones. The third thing that characterizes him is this. He'll deceive those who refuse to believe the truth. He will deceive those who refuse to believe the truth. With all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So once you reject the truth, once you reject the truth, the only alternative is to believe what's false. Think about that. If you reject the truth, well, the only alternative is you're going to believe something that is false. He will send a deluding influence that will go out. Now, God doesn't cause these people's unbelief, but He creates a circumstance that shows their unbelief. Their, their unbelief is unmasked. So in the end, and again, I come back to God's sovereignty, that God is in control. In the end, God even uses evil to serve His purposes. Is that an incredible God or what? In the end, even evil will be used to serve his purpose. Why, you can go back and say, why did God allow Satan to <clears throat> have pride in his heart and fall? Why did he allow the Garden of Eden to happen? Why did he allow sin to happen there? Why did God even allow all this? Did something get out of control? No. God was totally in control, but ultimately that is going to serve his purpose. You and I can't comprehend that, can we? Because his thoughts are so far above our thoughts. His ways are so far above our ways. We can't even begin to comprehend the things of God like that. But even evil is going to serve his purpose ultimately. God is sovereign over, over evil. 
as well as good. Or he's not sovereign at all. So when the man of lawlessness comes on the scene, it's because God has allowed that to happen. In his sovereignty. Not like all of a sudden he escapes, you know, and is revealed. No, it's under God's sovereignty. And in the end, it's going to work together for his glory. God is in control. So, three stages in the, in the career of the Antichrist. Some complicated outline today. Hope it didn't lose you. You got one in the bulletin, right? So go back and look at it. First of all, the, the restraint, the time of restraint. Secondly, rebellion. He will oppose God and exalt himself. He is going to be in league with Satan and will deceive those who refuse the truth. But then, verse 8, second part of, the, of that verse, the third stage of his career is retribution. The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. When Christ returns, he will destroy him with the breath of his mouth. There's no battle. It's like blowing a candle out. He just snuffs him out with the breath of his mouth. You know, the most magnificent picture here, the most, most you know, awe-inspiring picture here is not the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. The most awe-inspiring picture is Jesus wiping him out with the breath of his mouth. Wiping him out with the breath of his mouth. Destroying him. <clears throat> you know, we as believers, you know, we, we, we could be around the edge of this. I don't know. And, you know, different Christians look at the Scripture and, and they come out, you know, different places. They, they look at the Scripture and, uh, you know, all, all the details of the second coming. You know, we as believers, as Orthodox believers, conservative believers, we have certain uh, beliefs about the second coming, that Jesus will come literally. There'll come a day of judgment. There'll be literal heaven and hell for eternity. That's the only alternatives. You look at our Baptist faith and message. It's very basic. That's about all it says. As far as the details, you know, and people, the details are all over the place. So don't get hung up on that and don't ever take, make any of it a test of orthodoxy, you know, if you don't agree with me about a certain detail of the second coming. Uh, some people believe that uh, God's people are going to be taken out of this world before all this happens. Some believe that the Christians will go through the time of tribulation. You know, the Scripture tells us, doesn't it, that we shouldn't be surprised if we suffer for the kingdom. Nowhere we promise that we're always going to be delivered from ever having to suffer for our faith. Down through the ages of church history, countless Christians have died for the faith. They are dying for the faith right now in different parts of the world. So we need to remember what the Scripture says, how it warns us that we are going to suffer for our faith. Are you, are you ready to do that? Are you willing to do that? Is your faith that real? Is your faith that real? But you know, either way, we have to be prepared, don't we? Be prepared to meet the Lord. Be prepared to meet the Lord. Are you prepared to meet Him? Do you know Him as your personal Lord and Savior? As I preached last week, they just, you know, there's only two, two alternatives. You walk into this church and you sit on one side or the other. There's, there's no in-between. There's only two alternatives. You will either spend an eternity with the Lord Jesus or separated from Him. The only way to be sure of our eternal destiny is through personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You can't uh, be saved just by going to church. You know, being a church member doesn't save you. Being baptized doesn't save you. All the good works in the world can't save you. You must trust Jesus Christ who died for you, who took your place on the cross. Have you trusted Him today? I invite you to come if you haven't done that. 
Come and trust Him now as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you need to come here during the altar time and, and just pray for this nation. Boy, how we need prayer. Very, very serious time in the life of our nation. So you maybe just want to come down here and pray. This altar is always open during the invitation time for you to come down and pray as you feel led. Whatever God's saying to you, I want to pray that uh, God would make each of us a sanctuary. That's what this song is about as we close today. Lord, make me a sanctuary. Make me a sanctuary. Let's stand together for prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be here today, to worship you and praise you. God, I pray right now for these moments of commitment, moments of invitation. Lord, if there's one among us that doesn't know you in a personal way as Lord and Savior, I pray they will step out and step forward and trust you with their eternal destiny. Though the needs here, Father, I pray that, that you touch hearts and lives, Father. Help these moments to truly be an encounter with you, Lord. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.